0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Glad to be here. My name's Robert, one of the pastors here. Uh, It's kind of funny, so Brad and Will are in Uganda right now, and I got a text from Brad this morning with a a picture that I'm sure he probably wanted me to have put on the screen, but didn't do it. Anyway, Will preached first this morning in Uganda, and then Brad took the second service, I guess, where they're at, and he preached, and so now I'm preaching, so there's kind of a, a competition, at least in my mind, that's what I got from that text, right, that's what you got from it, as a, as a competition, so we'll see how this goes, but um, anyway, I'm glad to be here, the Uganda team, like Reynolds said, will be back, uh, I guess on Tuesday, sometime Tuesday, so uh, if you want to meet with me at any point this week... You really probably need to squeeze it in before they get back. <clears throat> All right, so uh, we, are, we have been in Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel. That's what we've been studying. Taking a break this week. Next week, we'll pick back up in Daniel 8. But this week, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. Don't get too excited. If you think, one verse, sweet. He's going to read it, and then we'll leave. That's not what's happening today. You're going to be here a little longer than that, uh, but hopefully we'll we'll keep it clipping and and we'll we'll, we'll get on with uh, the rest of our day. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1. It's on pages 756 or 965, depending on which Bible you're using out there in in the chairs in front of you. And uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible. Uh, and you, you need one, you do need one, uh, please take that for yourself. That's our gift to you uh, from Crosspoint. So uh, before we before we read the text, I want to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump right in, all right? Father, we're, uh, we're just grateful uh, to be gathered here this morning, uh, to be gathered in your house with your people, to hear from your word in a very real way. We are meeting with you this morning, even though we can't see you, even though we can't see your Son, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit at work in all of our lives. We, um, we do pray that you would help us to have a very real sense of your presence through your scriptures this morning, and, and we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would illuminate our hearts so that we can see you for who you are, and we can worship you, and, um, and live in such a way where we draw others into that worship as well. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, right, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse one, like I said, that's not the only place where it will be this morning. We're going to jump around a good bit. Uh, we'll have the verses on the screen. Uh, you have your Bibles. You know what to do. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This verse is stuck in my mind all week. I keep coming back to it, and I've tried to get away from it. I think there's probably other things that might be a little bit easier to, to navigate or preach than just one obscure verse in 2 Corinthians. But here we are. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart. All right, that's it. Um, It's kind of a a strange verse. Just to give you some context and perspective, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, right? He wrote 2 Corinthians, and and so he's writing to this particular church in Corinth, one that he's got a long-established relationship with of missionary uh, visits and establishing this church, and uh, he's written them one letter already, or maybe even two, and now he's writing them again. And, and Paul's life, as you probably guess, is one that has not been the easiest for him to this point. Um, he is writing to them in some ways to defend his ministry. Um, but here he, he lays it out. He says, we don't lose heart. And he says, we, he's, he's talking about himself and Timothy, who is sort of co-authoring this letter with him. Um, that's an odd thing for Paul to say, right? We, we don't know, we read that and we just kind of move past it, because we think of Paul as this super apostle, this guy who has um, all the chops he needs for, for ministry, and, uh, and, and you just don't really think about him having to sort of say, yeah, I'm not going to give up, I'm not losing heart, I'm not discouraged. Uh, we tend to think about Paul as this triumphant uh, preacher of the gospel, fearless and bold and courageous, never sleeps. But, but here he says something that's a little, that's a little vulnerable. But I think it, it meets us where we are as Christians, right? Because we're not always the super apostles uh, that we might think of ourselves as being from time to time. So, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. That makes me ask two questions. Uh, the first question is, why would... He lose heart. Why would Paul and Timothy lose heart in the first place? All right, Paul's saying we don't. So there's got to be some reason why the Corinthians at least might expect that he would. And question number two, why don't they lose heart? So why would he lose heart? And then why doesn't he? What's, what's keeping him from throwing in the towel? Uh, what, what, what's driving him? So let's look at that first question. Why would they lose heart? And maybe another way to think about it would be, why would he be discouraged in his ministry, and his gospel ministry? Uh, number one, because of opposition to the gospel. And this is really, I think, what he's getting at in general. Not just one of many points, but this is the crux of it all. is because of opposition to the gospel. But I think we, we, we sense that there's more to it than just, just simply saying, well, people were opposed to him. Uh, we know that in his own personal life, he, he faced opposition. And so if we look earlier on in this letter, if you go to chapter 1, verse 5, he says, um, he says, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Or in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's, that's quite a statement coming from the Apostle Paul. You see, he, he faces suffering, uh, persecution, and hardship. Right, this, this is a guy who would be shipwrecked multiple times in his life. Uh, but but he, he's even been beaten for preaching the gospel. But, but he's also a guy who wrestles with despair. Did you catch that? We're so burdened to the point of despair, is what he says. Uh, so he, he's got outward things that are pressing in on him personally. But he's also got inward things that he wrestles with. You know, inward temptations to despair, to unbelief, uh, to, to, to giving up. Uh, So so he's got this personal opposition to the gospel in his life. He's got opposition to the gospel in the church. I mean, the the very church that he's writing to. He explains in in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. If I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Why would Paul be causing this church pain? What's his problem, you know? Um... Well, this church is one, if you spe- especially if you've read 1 Corinthians, this is a church that is really, really fraught with sin. Um, there are some pretty sordid things going on in this particular church, and Paul's called them out. He's visited them. He's been so kind of aggr- aggrieved by their sin that he's even just dipped out early because he didn't want to have to to confront them again and again and again and again and again. And he's, he's writing to them now to say, listen, I, I wasn't able to visit you before because honestly, for me to be with you, would be, it would be too painful. And he's talking about believers. He's talking about a church that he loves, that he helps start. But, it, but he feels this pain, this emotional affliction by being with these fellow believers. Because of their own... Opposition to the gospel, their own resistance to obeying and following all that the gospel proclaims. And then finally, Paul faces opposition to the gospel in the world in general. Right? He's got it going on with himself, his own personal life. He finds it, even when he's among believers, this hesitation, this resistance to the gospel. And then it would seem probably very obvious to us right, that he goes to the world, he preaches the gospel to other people who he knows are not believers, and he finds opposition again and again there. And it takes different forms. Sometimes it's violently physical uh, altercations and, and frustration with what he's preaching. He's run out of town. Sometimes, though, he preaches the gospel and people hear it and they go, nah and they move on. And Paul, you know, wipes the dust off his feet, and then he goes to the next synagogue, the next town, the next group of Gentiles or Jews that he can find. Um, he, he faces hardened minds. He faces veiled hearts. If you go to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says as much. He says, their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Verse 15, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, he's specifically talking about the Jews that he would interact with on in his missionary journeys. Right? Gentiles aren't reading the Old Covenant. They're not browsing Exodus to find out what to do with their lives. But at the same time, we know that this, is, this isn't just true only of the Jews. It's true of, of all people. Gentile and Jew alike, uh, that that our minds are are veiled, our hearts are veiled uh, to who God is. And so, just by nature, we're automatically predisposed to disagree with the gospel, to to set it aside, to want to listen to other easier things, to hear things that make us feel better about ourselves and what we can accomplish on our own. And, And Paul finds resistance Among all people in this way. All people. Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter. So if I've painted a dire enough picture for you of maybe why Paul would feel like there's an opportunity here or a temptation for me to be discouraged or to give up, I'm going to take it another step. Uh, Well, let's look at uh, really how all this began for Paul. In Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, um, he says, well, if you're not familiar with Paul's story, so... Paul uh, is a blatant persecutor of the church, right? He is a Jew of Jews. He, he studied under the best Jewish seminary professors. He's got it all. He's, he's climbing the ranks. He's super legalistic. He, he obeys the law to a T. And on top of that, he's arresting Christians left and right. He even participates in the execution of a few, like Stephen, right? He stands there and holds people's jackets while Stephen is executed before him, okay? That's that's Saul. But then something happens. He's traveling, and and Jesus, he appears to him, blinding light. And and Paul is thrown off of his horse on the road, and, and when he opens his eyes, he doesn't see anything anymore. Jesus blinds him and says, you need to listen to what I have to say to you. I don't want you to look at anything. I don't want you to think about anything. I'm talking to you right now. And he sends Paul to a guy named Ananias, right? And, and Ananias is a—he's a believer. He's a—he's a brother. He knows the gospel, but he also knows that Paul Saul is so opposed to the gospel that he's—he's he's actually pretty hesitant to uh, to interact with him. But but Jesus tells him in chapter nine, verses fifteen and sixteen, "Go, Ananias, for he Paul." is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's pretty sweeping. That covers just about everybody, right? Gentiles, kings, children of Israel, all the people in the world right there. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Uh, so we think about Paul's life, we think about his commission, what Jesus has sent him to do, and, and it's, it's really remarkable when you consider who Paul has been up to this point. Uh, he's a blasphemer. He's opposed to Jesus. He he refuses to admit that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the Messiah. And and he sets out to destroy his church and destroy all that Christ is about. Um, And here Jesus flips the, the script and says, Actually, so sorry, you're going to do the opposite. I want you to start building my church instead. I want you to start building up believers. I want you to spread the gospel. I want you to bring my name to bear on all people everywhere. Gentile, Jew, low station, high station, even kings. Everybody. Also, verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's a difficult pill to swallow. We we don't think about the gospel involving suffering. We don't think about it being part and parcel of what Christ has called Paul to do. Certainly not what Christ has called us to do. You know, that we would go and even suffer for the sake of Christ. Um, never mind that our suffering's probably pale in comparison to what, what Paul has experienced in his own lifetime. But that's that's a part of it. It's not that Jesus is punishing Paul for what he's done. Right? Jesus took the punishment for Paul's sin himself. That, that's why the gospel is so good. He's sending Paul to proclaim that same message, but part of it involves opposition to that gospel. Part of it involves suffering on Paul's, uh, on Paul's end of things. So it's, it's part of Paul's commission. This is part of his job description. It's not just that he would proclaim Christ, but that he would suffer for the same name. Um, how does this look? If we, if we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and, and we just look at verses 8 through 12... Uh, we, we see what Paul means and how this ends up working out for him. I'm just going to read uh, half of, of each section uh, without the, the following bits so you get the full gist of what Paul really is dealing with. He says, We are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. He says, We are always carrying in the body... The death of Jesus. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Verse twelve Death is at work in us. And maybe when you've read that before, you, you always end up reading, but this, you know, and this Christ is at work in a in a different way than what we maybe perceive. And yet it's still true, these things that he is that He are He is saying are still true. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are carrying in our bodies death. I feel the weight of death everywhere I go, every day. Those are true statements by Paul. His life is not easy. His life of gospel ministry is not just a breeze. He pays the price every day. He struggles. He wrestles with opposition in himself, in the church, and in the world outside. He wrestles with this, the implications of the gospel, and how, frankly, it's 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 not always what people embrace, even ourselves. So, our our subject today—woo! This is exciting, right? It's the beginning of the summer. Let's talk about suffering. Uh, we we may we may kind of read this and think, "Well, I'm not really dealing with that. I don't know how this exactly applies to me." And yeah, our, our suffering our suffering uh, may not look exactly the same. But let's, 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 let's generalize here a bit uh, and, and scale it back. Um, we're, not, we're not just talking about any old suffering, right? It's not, it's not that Paul was being persecuted for just being a knucklehead, right? It's not that this was a, a fault in his personality, that people were just annoyed with him and kind of wanted to see him lose his job or get out of town or whatever. It's not the problem. It's not suffering in the sense that, that maybe sometimes we tend to think of just my life isn't going the way I want it to go. Right? Paul is concerned about the suffering and this suffering is even coming upon him because he's bringing the gospel message with him. Um, he, he's suffering not just in general, but he's suffering to make Christ known. And in that way, we, we all can kind of hopefully relate. If you're, if you're a believer... What, is, what, is, what does it mean to be a believer but, but to make Christ known? This isn't just specific to Paul. This is true of all of us. We've all been given the Great Commission. We'll talk about some other ways in which our ministry is, is the same as Paul's. But, but I think what we see here is a challenge uh, for ourselves. To consider where we invest ourselves, where we invest our time and our energy and our, our emotion and our hearts, right? I mean, are, are we investing our emotions and our energies uh, in advancing the gospel to such an extent that when, when it's resisted, we're tempted to be discouraged, all right, I mean, think about the things that discourage you. Think about the things that would cause you to maybe lose heart. Do they have anything to do with the fact that the gospel is being resisted, whether it's in yourself or in others or, or outside, your, outside this church in, in the world? I mean, are we invested in the gospel enough where, where we feel the same sort of discouragement and dis, disheartening uh, emotion that Paul senses when, when the gospel is opposed? Do we feel that? If, if you don't, You may not understand the gospel. You may not truly love Christ. If you look into the world and and you look into your own heart and you look in this church and and you can look at sin or you can look at resistance to the gospel and all the numerous forms it takes and you can just kind of, ah, okay, you know, that's the world. That's life, you know. We should feel the weight of resistance to the gospel. We should feel that. Our lives should be invested in, with, with, with the gospel so that, so that we feel this. So think, think of some ways the world resists the gospel, just to put it in perspective maybe. Um, I mean, there's the obvious sort of thing, right? When people reject the gospel, you know, maybe maybe you have a neighbor that you've shared the gospel with and just again and again and again they're, they're not interested in it. Maybe even they kind of avoid you now at this point in your relationship. They just don't want to... I really don't want to hear about it. Maybe it's your coworker, or somebody, you know. They close their door, they, they draw the shades, they, they close their garage when they see you coming because they just don't want to have to deal with you uh, because they know what message you carry. Um, or, or think maybe maybe even of, of a family member or, or even a child uh, of yours. that you, you repeatedly you share the gospel with again and again and again, and there's just resistance there. I mean, that, those are probably the easier examples for us to come up with. But, you know, the gospel can be resisted in this world in, in a number of ways. Uh, it, it's resisted when, when we just look out into the world and you, you see the helpless and harassed state of, of people all over the world. You know, like sheep without a shepherd. This is how Jesus saw people in Matthew 9. He, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and he felt compassion for them, right? He was moved by their resistance... the gospel he was moved by their resistance to the the good plan and order that god had intended for his world um you know when presidential candidates uh see racism as a feature and not a bug of their campaign or or their first order of business after nomination is to immediately go and and give planned parenthood a big old hug you know the, the world resists the gospel, does that, does that trigger something for you? Does that do something for you? Does it make you, you groan with frustration and sadness and compassion that, that people resist the gospel? I think about when four-year-olds are encouraged by their parents to follow their own uh, confused hearts and and deface the image of God in them by the way they choose to, to dress and the, the gender they choose to identify with. And this may be kind of heavy, I get that, but, but do you see? I mean, the gospel is being resisted everywhere, and it's not just in the form of, oh, I don't want to believe that. That's for, that's for weak people. You know, that, that's for people who just have nothing better to do with their lives and they kind of hope in something else, you know? It's, 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 not, it's not always as straightforward as that. Think of the ways fellow believers resist the gospel. Um, you know, we see indwelling sin in, in one another, right? That's a part of what it is to be human, is that we are sinful. And it's still a part of what it is to be a Christian, is that we wrestle with sin. We've all been sinned against, right, by one another. I've sinned against you, you've sinned against me. We, we all know it, we feel that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you see just a, a spiritual apathy, you know, in one another. We're, we're not here on Sundays, or, or I just don't really, I don't have time to read my Bible, I just don't really feel like committing to, to things like that. You know, I got other stuff going on. Oh, but I'm a Christian, you know. You see this apathy and, and neglect. Um, sometimes it's more corporate sins in, in, in the body at large, where we just kind of are all running in the same direction and don't realize necessarily that, that we're kind of running headlong into group Sin, just worldliness in general, you know? Uh, think about the conversations we have and the, uh, the things that, that we spend our time talking about with one another. You know, the, the TV shows that we glorify as we, uh, oh, did you see that? Did you hear that? Um, or even more serious things like just ignoring, um, uh, ignoring sin and, and, and not really calling things what they are when we're around each other. Um. Think about the idolatry sometimes that we see in one another. The things that we value and prioritize above Christ or above his people. Uh, You think about the general joylessness maybe that you you see from time to time. Um, All these things can weigh us down, can't they? Even if you can't pinpoint it, even if you can't name it, you look out sometimes, even in this sanctuary, and you, you see people or you're reminded of situations uh, and conflict and, and you just kind of sigh. You know, I think Paul felt this. He didn't want to even visit the Corinthians at first because he was concerned that it would just be too painful. We know probably better than, uh, than these other two ways that... that uh, We can resist the gospel in our own hearts. Hopefully you're honest enough with yourself to know that, to admit that. Those nagging sins that just keep coming back, or uh, that lack of of discipline to really study the word, or to share the gospel with others, um, to pray. We all feel that kind of guilt from time to time, right? Um, Delayed sanctification. You know, why am I not where I thought I would be at this point in my journey with Christ? I thought I'd be so much further ahead. How is it that I've been a Christian for these many years and I'm still just kind of learning things like they're brand new? All right, so in all of these ways, the gospel is, is resisted you know, in, in our hearts, in here, out there. It's being resisted. And, and just going through this, this litany of, of thoughts here, you know, you, you feel that pressure. I hope. I hope you feel a bit of the burden and the weight of this resistance to the gospel. We know this is not what it should be. We know that the gospel is better, and yet we, we sometimes feel helpless to do anything about it, like it's just an insurmountable uh, wall that we can't climb over. So, yeah, there may be some differences in our ministry and in Paul's ministry. Paul is an apostle. Paul is called to go before kings, right? A few of us will, will go before kings. Um, Paul's ministry seems different. He wrote scripture. That's not a part of any of our job descriptions. Thank the Lord. Um, but our ministries are very similar. And in, in, in these examples kind of, I think they give, they give credence to that. You know, Jesus gave us the Great Commission as well. You know, Matthew 28, All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's not just for the the 11 guys that he was speaking to as he ascended into heaven. That's for all of his disciples. It's for the disciples that they would make, and that eventually has worked its way down to us. Supplies to us. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, this is Paul speaking, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. That we isn't just for Paul and Timothy. He's, he's talking about all the people he's writing to. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is, this is something that should be on our lips as much as it is on Paul's lips. 1 Peter four ten and 11. This is a beautiful statement that Peter gives to describe what it is to be a part of the local church. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, This is the mission for all of God's people, for all of the redeemed. This is what we're all called to, not just Paul. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I I love that, that he even refers to just singing. Right, we, we think about ministry, and we think that that's something for professionals. That's something for guys like Paul, or maybe preachers or pastors. But it doesn't always look like that. Ministry to one another, encouraging one another in the Lord, it can look like singing together on Sunday morning. Which we've all participated in this morning. Gospel ministry is not just for super apostles. It is for all of us. And so resistance to the gospel isn't just a discouragement to super apostles. It's, 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 it should be a discouragement or a temptation to be a, discur- a discouragement, even to us, because we should also want to see the gospel go forward into the world. What are we talking about here but simply putting the gospel forward wherever it's needed, right? This is what Paul and Timothy did, and it's not unique to them. It's, it's for all of us. If we Claim the name of Christ. And so there's a a common conundrum then that we all face, uh, which is a failing, struggling ministry to the lost. And and I've said it enough, but I'll say it again. The lost outside, the lost in here, and and even the lost in here, or the the parts of us that that tend to resist the gospel most. We're, We're all struggling here we all feel that Um, Paul felt it in 1 Corinthians 1 22-24 he said that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles Christ crucified is it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to anybody it's offensive to some it's boring to others. It's weak and foolish to many. Everywhere Paul turned and everywhere we turn, we face resistance to the gospel at a very core level about who Christ is and what he's done. The world just doesn't get it. What does it mean, then, to lose heart? We've given you all sorts of reasons why Paul might lose heart, why we might lose heart. What does it look like, though? And I tell you, it's, it's not always as straightforward as just kind of giving up, you know, as just quitting. It doesn't look like that all the time. Losing heart can, can take different forms. And in, in chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, Paul gives us an idea of what it would look like if he were to lose heart. He says, I don't lose heart. In fact, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. And it's Paul's way of saying, this is kind of what it would look like if I were to lose heart. So let's see what it would look like. Uh, he says in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says it would look like disgraceful, underhanded ways. He says we've renounced those things, but, but the fact is that if he wasn't to renounce them and, and he were to just lose heart and give in, that's, that's what it would look like. That's the form that it would take, would be disgraceful, underhanded ways. What does that mean? You know, I think it probably has something to do with just manipulation or browbeating other people a general sort of impatience and frustration and anger uh, at at others who who just aren't, just get it, just figure it out. Maybe you feel this in your own heart, you know, why can't I just get it together? You know, and so we we kind of skirt around the gospel and and try to use other ways to manipulate people into just kind of changing their behavior, into looking like they they figured out what the gospel is and they believe it. But, But that's not... That's not actually proclaiming Christ. That's that's the opposite. That's what it looks like to lose heart. In in verse 2 again, he he says that um, we refuse to practice cunning uh, or or to tamper with God's word. Do we obscure difficult doctrine? Um, Because we're afraid that that would actually turn people away from the gospel and not bring them actually closer to Christ, right? I mean, do we talk about the wrath of God? Do we have a sense of the justice of God that is demanded for, for our sins, for the sins of the whole world? Or is that something we kind of avoid? And, well, I'll put that back. I'm going to tell you the good news first. I'm going to tell you the best part before I really even tell you why you need the good news. Um, do, we, do we tend to, to avoid and skirt things to the side? Um, 4 verse 5, Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. In other words, we don't, we don't proclaim us, we're not relying on ourselves, we're proclaiming Christ, but you see that if Paul were to lose heart, one of the, the forms that would take would be for him to just put it all on his own shoulders, this gospel's not enough, I got to do this myself. If people are going to trust in Christ, if people are going to change, if, 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 there, if resistance to the gospel is going to be overcome, then I, I just, I'm just going to have to rely on me. The self-dependence, self-reliance, kind of taking all your own wit and wisdom and charisma and strengths and saying, this is what's going to bring people to Christ, not the gospel itself, not the work of Christ, but me. Paul says, no, I, I don't preach that. But that's what losing heart looks like. So do you see yourself in any of the above examples? And do, you, do, you, do you see that, those wheels spinning in your own mind from time to time? Um, probably you do. If you're a believer, I, I would imagine that from time to time we're all tempted to just say, you know what, the gospel might not be enough. We, right? that, that's kind of what we've been saying before we were saved, and it's something we wrestle with even after, that the gospel just might not be sufficient for the task. That Maybe there's something I can do. Or maybe there's something about the gospel that I need to kind of hide. We do it in our own hearts, we do it with each other, and we do it with the world. When we lose heart. And the deceptive thing is, sometimes it looks like we're busy. Sometimes it looks like we're doing something. Sometimes it looks like we're leaning forward. But, but in reality, we're not. In reality, we've given up. We've thrown in the towel. We've given in to discouragement and unbelief. So, enough of that, right? Why doesn't Paul lose heart? He says, this whole point of this is to say, I don't lose heart. I don't follow this pattern. Even though everything going on around me says that I probably should. I refuse to give in to that. I refuse to believe that. Why? What is it about Paul's life and ministry that keeps him moving forward with the gospel instead of just hiding under a rock? Why does he do it? How can we likewise take courage? Well, it depends on the ministry that Paul has. If you you remember verse 1, chapter 4, he says, Therefore having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So he doesn't lose heart for some reason because of this ministry that he has. Now wait a second, I I thought he was losing heart because of the ministry that he had. Or I thought he would be tempted to be discouraged because of the ministry that he's been given, right? Jesus says, that I'm going to show him how much he'll suffer for my name. It's not not an exciting job description. Wouldn't that be it? Paul's giving us all these ideas of what it looks like to resist the gospel. Isn't that actually what's causing his frustration, maybe? Isn't that potentially the the risky thing that will cause him to be discouraged or lose heart? Well, Maybe. If If you look at his ministry from a certain perspective, it depends on the focus of his ministry, if his ministry is all about the, the side effects and the outcomes and the, the way that people respond or the way that he responds, the way that he works, what he can do, if, it, if the focus of his ministry is on that, if it is man centered, oriented around man and man's response and man's work, then yes, yes, his ministry would be a, trem- a tremendous discouragement. But that's not what it's about. That's not the gospel that he preaches. That's not how he sees his ministry. It has nothing to do with what man will or won't do. It has everything to do, not with the ministry itself, but with the gospel of his gospel ministry. So let's talk about that. What does he see in the gospel that means that he he can go forward with it unashamed, unhindered, courageous? What is it? Uh, His... Uh, his ministry is, is kind of explained in, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Uh, the beginning of, of chapter 4, he says, Therefore. And when we see that, we always have to ask, What's the therefore, therefore, right? So the best way to find out what the therefore is, therefore, is to go back, not forward, but backward uh, towards whatever he said before that. And in chapter 3, verses 12 through 18, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, I don't lose heart. This is the ministry that Paul envisions for himself. This is the ministry that he was given. And, right, it's the ministry that we have been given. To spread this gospel, to put this gospel forward, here and here and out there, this is the gospel message. Now, what was he talking about Moses' veil? I'm not going to read anything for it, but in Exodus 34, Moses, he, he, he communes with God, he meets with God. This happens regularly all right, Moses is kind of this picture of, of Christ for us. And, and so Moses, he goes to the Lord, and he, and he receives the law, he receives commandments from God, and then he delivers them to the people of Israel. But in order for him to get these commandments, he would, he would be really face-to-face, as much as you can be face-to-face with God, he would be face-to-face with God, and what, what would happen is that his face would be lit up like a Christmas tree. He'd walk away, and and his face would be glowing because he had been in the presence of the glory of the Lord. And, And when he would then leave the Lord's presence, it didn't just stop. His face kept lighting up like Rudolph. And so he would go out to the people, and he would deliver for the people the word of the Lord, whatever the commandments were, whatever God told them to do to obey and to be faithful to the covenant, the old covenant. He would go out to them, and he would... He would preach, and he would explain uh, this news to them. But when he would do it, the people were so terrified of his face, right? You can imagine. Someone walks up to you with a glowing face. A whole bunch of questions are going through your mind. But the first thing on your mind is not, I'm going to listen to what you have to say, right? That's not where you're going with this. Instead, I've got to get away. You need help. But I'm not going to help you. I'm, here's a doctor. Um, so Moses goes out, and, and his face is lit up, and the people were so terrified that that in order to help them kind of deal with it and grasp, because he still had a message to deliver, right? He would put a veil over his face. So they wouldn't have to freak out, you know? Wouldn't stare at that weird mole on his forehead. You know, they could just kind of listen to what he had to say and and then move on. Uh, Paul's alluding to that. He's saying, okay, when we preach the gospel, it's not like that anymore. The 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 old covenant, the old ways, the law, the old testament, all of these things, the people of God saw them as as if through a veil. Because the glory of the Lord was terrifying. The holiness of God is not something we want to be face to face with. Because we're not worthy. Right? We're sinful, we're fallen, and and the the Israelites knew it. and, and, And we all instinctively know this as well that we're not worthy to be in the presence of God. But instead of running to the gospel, right? people tend to put up a veil, their their faces are covered. They can't see. They can't see God for who he is. They can't see the beauty of the gospel for what it is because they're blinded to it. They're blinded by their own fallen, sinful state. Romans 1, uh, 18 and 21 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I don't want to see that. I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to know about that or any of its implications for my life. Don't give me this. Right? It's a veil. And we all have one. Although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the state of all mankind. This is the the genesis of resistance to the gospel. This is what we're up against, And, and if we're not careful, this is what will then discourage us beyond despair. But the gospel, right? This is a new covenant. It's not like the old one. Something happens with this new covenant, with the work of Jesus, that changes everything. And so, God's redemption of man through the new covenant removes the veil. If you look at 2 Corinthians 3.16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Israelites didn't get that. They didn't have that. In order for them to even turn to the Lord, they, they, they demanded a veil. They had to have a veil. There's no way I can look at your face, Moses. This is ridiculous. This is terrifying. I don't want anything to do with that. But when we turn to the Lord, through Christ, the veil is, is lifted. In verse 17, Paul says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And as long as that veil was down, the people of God were enslaved to their sin. They found no hope, no power to overcome sin and temptation, to redeem themselves. They had nothing. But because the Lord comes to us in the gospel, through the work of Jesus, by his spirit, that veil is lifted and, and the shackles are broken. And we're we're free. We're free to obey, we're free to follow Him with joy. We're free to listen to His law and obey it, not to save ourselves, but because Christ has done the work. Verse 18, God's glory is now beheld. He says, we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. And not only do we see the Lord for who he is and don't have to dread it because of our sin, but we can embrace it, we can look at it longingly and lovingly and say, yes, this is all that I've ever wanted. The Israelites were terrified of the glory of God. God's holiness wasn't where they wanted to be. It's not something they wanted to face. But in Christ, we can face the glory of the Lord. In Christ, our sins are done away with. And in Christ, we can remove the veil and we can look at Him. We can see God for who he is. We no longer see wrath, but we see mercy. We see grace. We see forgiveness. And it's not anything we've earned or merited in any way. This is... This is what we see, and not only do we see the glory of the Lord, but our own image is transformed gradually to match that of Christ. From, from one degree of glory to another, is what Paul says. So that even if it is slow, even if it is methodical and a bit plodding at times, and even if it's not as fast as we want it to be, we know the trajectory, because we can see the end result. We see Christ, we see him crucified, and we see him resurrected. And and because we see that, we then know where our hope is. And we don't despair anymore. Because we know that Christ being for us will bring us down the same path. Because Christ has died and risen again, we too can die to our sin and come back to new life. Glorious, renewed, transformed life and walk by the glory of God. I love verse 18. He says, This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know, if, if we look at our ministry, if we look at the gospel as something that depends entirely on us, or on other people, to believe, or to preach, to understand, to be smart and witty about if we If we think that That salvation, in any way, depends on me, or on you, or on the unbeliever. We will be discouraged. We will be tempted to lose heart. And unlike Paul, we we would. But when we see the gospel not as my work, or your work, or their work, but we see it as the work of God, as the work of the Spirit on our behalf, unearned, undeserved, undeserved, That will free you up. When you realize that the only way anyone is going to overcome their resistance to the gospel is because the Lord would be at work in them, you can do whatever. Because it doesn't depend on you. You can't fail. Because you're not doing anything, you're not risking anything. Instead, you're going forward with the greatest news that there is. You're proclaiming Christ and his work by the Spirit. Do you see what wonderful news this is? Do you see that? Do you get that? I want you to see that th- this, should, this should free you up. This should, this should be something that, that, that overcomes your, your tendency or your temptation to be discouraged or to throw in the towel. Because Christ has always been enough. He has always been the one who raises the veil and reveals to us who God is and helps us to see the beauty of the Lord and to worship. He's always been the one. So, Paul says that we have this ministry by the mercy of God, and and I think it's clear then what he means. It's the mercy of God that that Paul has even saved, it's the mercy of God that any of us come to believe. But not only that, it's the mercy of God that allows Paul to preach the gospel fearlessly and courageously. It's the mercy of God that allows us to do the same. Right, Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's what Reynolds read earlier. By God's mercy we are saved. And so what saved us, is the only thing that we can expect to save anyone else. Paul, uh, in a very fitting way, he, he lost his vision when he met Christ. But Christ then gave him his sight back through Ananias. Paul could see the veil was lifted. He saw Christ for who he was, and, and he knew that that was all by the mercy of God. But the gospel through Paul, not just the gospel to him, but the gospel then through him was also something that he was unworthy of. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. It's all of mercy. And so the veil is lifted by Jesus, Uh, not just to see God's glory for the first time, but even for believers to honor it and 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 to revere and to worship him more and more in line with with what's revealed in his word. Uh, it's it the the veil is lifted by Christ in the hearts of those who oppose the gospel. It's lifted in the hearts of believers who don't see all the gospel's implications and the veil is lifted by Jesus alone in my heart when I don't always know the way. When I'm tempted to throw in the towel on my own sanctification because I just don't feel like I'm getting any traction. Christ is the one who has to lift the veil. Christ is the one who, who I should be turning to, not myself. So what did this mean for Paul's ministry? And we'll go through this real quick. In, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says that we, we, we're not hiding the gospel. We openly state the truth. I'm not afraid of anything that the gospel says. I don't have to doctor it up to make it more palatable for you. I can just tell you like it is. You are a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is he. Trust in him. Ah, it's so much simpler than beating around the bush, worrying about whether or not you're getting everything just right. Proclaim Christ. He's the one who saves, he's the one who does it, he will lift the veil. Or how about this in, in verse three? He says that we uh, well he, he says that even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And what I love about this statement is that he's not really hiding from the truth about the world. He's not putting his head in the sand. Well, I don't really think people are resistant to the gospel. People will just kind of figure it out. There's nothing I really need to do. No, he's saying, no, I know that people are resistant to this. But I know that the Lord is sovereign. Yes, they may be veiled. and, And yes, the God of this world, Satan himself, may be the one hiding the gospel from them. But the Lord, he reigns over Satan himself. God is sovereign. This world is a mess. Yes, but God's in control. We know what's happening. We're not blind to this. We're not guessing. In verse 5, he, he proclaims Christ as the Lord and, and not ourselves as his servants. Paul, Paul is able, because he sees Christ as the one who lifts the veil, Paul is able to see himself, and, and we should likewise see ourselves as gospel midwives. It's a weird analogy I'm about to do. Alright, but but this is kind of what we are. What what midwife ever just gave up because, because the, the mother to be was was screaming her, her lungs out, you know? That's part of the job, this is part of the gig, this is what you're doing. Midwives are there because they love to see babies born. They love to be a part of that process, sometimes in kind of a weird way, but they're there. They love it. They're encouraging and excited to be there, and no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how much their hand is being squeezed to death, they're there, because they love being a part of new life taking place. And and this is our same joy. In fact, our joy is even infinitely greater. So this is a radically freeing mindset to have in ministry. i'll conclude by asking a couple of questions are you in danger of losing heart are you in danger of throwing in the towel maybe you already have and, and you don't quite realize it maybe you're thinking well no i haven't quit i'm still here right i'm still reading my bible but like we've been saying there are other ways to 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 give up than to just quit outright and walk away are you are you hesitant to plainly share christ you feel like there's something more you've got to bring to the table to make this more palatable and tasty for other people. You, you, you might be losing heart. Um, does the gospel ever apply to real life for you, or is it just something you believe uh, without really ever having to say or do things that might challenge other people or yourself, right? We're good at being ambiguous sometimes about what the gospel's implications are in this world, right? You know, it's one thing to say, Jesus saves sinners, Jesus loves sinners, Sinners and he died for you. That's one thing. And that's a hard thing to say. No question. This world doesn't receive that very well. But it's another thing, and I find this especially true within the church, for us to say, yeah, Jesus died to save sinners and the gospel, it it has implications and it means this specifically right now. That's where a lot of times we run into traction. Because we can kind of imagine where the gospel applies and where the gospel doesn't. We can kind of fabricate for ourselves what are gospel issues and then what are things that we can just ignore. But if the gospel doesn't land in your life, you, you, might, be, you might be giving up. If you're, if you're more comfortable holding to a general sort of statement rather than seeing how the gospel actually takes hold, roots out specific sin, and changes us. Are you, are you hesitant to minister to other people? All right, Paul, he wrote, it's, it's painful for me to, to visit you. Uh, he he did visit them. He ended up visiting them. He's writing them this letter, and he wanted more time to kind of think of what he was going to say. He wasn't avoiding it altogether. But, but the reality is, for many of us, we're avoiding ministry to other people in this church. Now, are, you, are you hesitant to, to disciple other people in this church? Are you, are you hesitant to study the Word together or to, to pray for one another um, Are you hesitant to uh, minister to, to our children in children's ministry? Um, I, would just, I just want to press on you that, that if, you see, if you see ministry to other people as not for you because you don't think you have what it takes, uh, you may have lost heart right because ministry to others bringing the gospel to bear on the lives of other people has never been about what what your gifts and talents are right it's, it's never been about your abilities or your wit or your wisdom or your charisma it's never been about whether or not you're you're good with kids or or you're good one on one studying the bible it doesn't matter because Christ his gospel this is what we proclaim and it's his gospel, it's Christ's work himself that lifts the veil. Or maybe it's not about you. Maybe you're not concerned that you don't have what it takes. In fact, you know that you do. But maybe you're just concerned that everyone else doesn't have what it takes. And so you avoid one another, and and you don't want to reach out to that person. Or Look, I tried that, right? I've reached out to him. I've called him. I tried praying for her. I've invited her to my Bible study. She just doesn't want to be a part of it. I don't have time for this. They're not ready for it. I want to find the people who have already got all of Romans memorized, and I'm just going to talk with them about that. It doesn't depend on them either. Right? We, we all have to overcome resistance to the gospel in our own hearts. All of us. And the beauty is that Christ is able to overcome it for us. Amen. Have you lost heart for, heart for your own sanctification? And maybe you say, I don't see any progress in me or, or my marriage or, or my own discipline. I'm not sure if it's even worth the effort anymore. Know that God wants sanctification and gospel uh, resistance overcome in you more than you do for yourself. And, and he alone can overcome it. Finally, just a reminder, we're, we, we are not and we have never been the gospel's number one selling point. Um, but Christ is. So, so preach Christ to yourself, to one another, uh, and and to the world, and and do it boldly, and courageously, because Christ is at work. He lifts the veil. He brings light to darkened eyes. So let's 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 pray. And Ben, you guys can come on up. Um. Father, I'm grateful for, uh, for this time just to meditate on your word, to, to think about what it is to have gospel ministry and what it means to proclaim Christ, and as difficult and uh, discouraging as it can be from time to time, when we, we don't see the gospel taking root in ourselves or in other people. And we're tempted to throw in the towel, tempted to give up, to lose heart. We're grateful for the ministry that you've given us, which is not ourselves, it's not the strengths of other people, but the ministry you've given us is is all by grace. It's as we ourselves have received mercy from you, mercy in Christ, that the scales would fall from our eyes that the veil would be lifted from our hearts and mercy from Christ through us that by your work alone people would turn and trust and and the veil would be lifted and you would be rightly worshipped and praised and glorified in us give us boldness I pray that if nothing else that we would leave this morning with an awareness of your work alone through Jesus. That we would exult in this, that it would give us great encouragement. It would give us great joy even as we sing in a moment. Lord, I I pray for the the non-believers in this room. And if you are one, listen to this. Lord, we know that you have veiled The eyes of unbelievers, that that their eyes are veiled, that you are sovereign over it, and that only you can remove it. But in our fallenness and and weakness and sinfulness, we won't turn to you. I pray for those who do not believe that, that they would see this for themselves. If you're not a believer in this room this morning, You may think it's because of your own wisdom and rationale, but the reality is that you are being hoodwinked by Satan himself. Lord, I pray that you would open eyes to see this truth, that they would turn and trust in you. Maybe come down front and speak with a pastor or elder or speak with someone they know to be a believer. Lord, I pray for the Christians in this room, for those who do trust you, but wrestle with indwelling sin and those nagging battles with sin that we still face from time to time. I pray that you would give us great encouragement this morning because of what Christ has done. That we would let go of trying to win the battle ourselves or mope because we're not strong enough for the, for the task. Pray that you would overcome our own resistance to the gospel. And I pray that you would use us to minister to one another to overcome resistance to the gospel as we preach Christ to each other. I pray that believers in this room this morning would not leave here before having in their mind or or on their lips the, the name of someone that they can reach out to to minister to and encourage. Not because of them, not because they think they're great, or because they think the other person can take it and figure it out, because they think of Christ and of his work and of his greatness. I pray that in all of this, we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would see your glory for what it is, that we would exalt in the matchless name of Jesus, who alone can lift the veil, who alone brings us to fellowship with you, and who gradually though we may not always perceive it, is transforming us glory to glory into His image. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.